I think this is one of the most important issues that we have to consider. If we don't act, we are going to lose our democracy. January the 6th is a day of epiphany in a religious sense, when the Bible says kings made gifts to the newborn Jesus, the Savior. On January 6th, in these modern times, we've been focused on a corrupt president's attempt to overturn the election he lost, beaten like a drum, organizing for weeks afterwards with staff and members of Congress to change the election results to change the election results in Georgia and elsewhere, to ignore the Electoral College's final word, to demand a vice president change the result, to incite a mob to coerce the Congress, to invade the Capitol, even to hang the vice president, to kidnap the speaker, but most of all, to stop the count of electors making it Joe Biden president rather than Trump. Trump and his lackeys were prepared to stop at nothing if they couldn't get the vice president to throw out the election that Trump lost. Trump saw himself as our savior, and the gift that he wanted was the power to continue in office, perhaps as president for life, America's first monarch. Of course, there's another more familiar meaning for epiphany. It's also a term without religious meaning, identifying that moment aha moment, when you suddenly see or understanding something in a new or very clear way, what may have been doubtful or obscure before becoming illuminated. We elected a Democrat, Joe Biden, because we feared we were losing our democracy. But we expected him to fight for our democracy. We expected he would appoint an attorney general who understood our democracy was at risk. The epiphany, or surprise, I argue, was that our newly minted government wasn't doing anything to bring down the enemy within, not Trump, nor any of his traitorous cohort. You may ask, if investigations are secret, how could you know nothing is going on? Well, the truth is in every grand jury investigation there are public events search warrants, arguments about the warrants, witnesses challenging subpoenas, others refusing documents, PR defense media strategies, and contempt proceedings. There has been no sign of any investigation in the last year, none. If you can trust what we're told, it surely sounds like the resources that we had to go after Trump and his team was devoted instead to chasing the rioters and a kind of catch for a minor charge and release for probation or short jail term. The Just Us Department went after the rioters exclusively. I would define it as low-hanging fruit, so proud and misguided and overheated in their usurpation of our government. They posed for each other's cell phones. They posted who they were online, what they did and why. They were so self-righteous and certain they were going to succeed in their crimes would be pardoned or ignored. They'd seen Trump pardon Flynn and, and Stone. When they installed Trump, for certain, they knew he'd take care of them. But when push came to shove, they were left adrift. The last thing Trump did for them was to signal the retreat on January the 6th, after Trump had been watching the affair for 182 minutes, when Trump realized his coup attempt had failed, and he sounded the retreat. And time for his rioters to get out of Dodge. There was that old comedy show 
I know it because I lived across the street from where they filmed it as a kid in the Bronx. Car 54, where are you? With officers Tootie and Muldoon. With actors Joe Ross and Fred Gwynn. It was a pretty funny comedy. Now, they could have made those misdemeanor case pleas in a New York minute and maybe even done better than the plea bargains Gartland got. Very many got probation and others mostly short jail sentences. One D.C. federal judge asked, why is the Justice Department talking as if the rioters committed serious crimes but only prosecuting them as if their offense was a simple trespass? Good question. Trump and Rogue Rudy and West Coast Professor Eastman with Navarro's help wrote out a plan for a coup. Talk about brazen criminal incompetence. Prosecutors usually tell a jury that you can infer what the plan was in the conspiracy from what they do. They don't write it down. I did, however, once have a case in which La Paz Bolivian, a cocaine conspiracy lawyer, actually wrote an agreement between and among the conspirators. Now, but in this crime against the United States, just like that case in La Paz, Bolivia, with uh, a lawyer uh, writing an agreement, we have a written document that explained the plan, the coup plan. Trump and his team figured on the unwashed hooligans in the street while, as their overseers in the West Wing and the Capitol then plotted and planned for delivery of the vote to Trump. This was not like, uh, say, Pearl Harbor or 9-11, this investigation. It wasn't an attack by a foreign nation state. No, rather it was a crime committed by the rioting rabble in the street directed by those who held public office, who took an oath to preserve and protect our republic, who held the highest office in the land in case of Trump, but nevertheless were scheming to overthrow the government. Our attorney general, our chief law enforcement officer, failed to have a single person in the White House or the Hill interviewed. They weren't brought to the grand jury. They weren't subpoenaed. They weren't asked to explain himself or herself or what happened before, during, and after January the 6th. That's a shame and a disgrace. They said A.G. Merrick Garland was going to follow in Bobby Kennedy's footsteps. Well, he didn't. Plainly, he didn't. Bobby Kennedy always said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, Garland certainly didn't fit that prescription. Not even close. Madison said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal government would be necessary. In other words, if there is no coercion for men to obey the law, there is no law, only chaos. And our recent experience proves that. Now, about Garland's investigation, some say there are hundreds of thousands of documents and persons to investigate. Really, it's not that complicated, not what has to be done. We start with the prime target, and his name is Donald Trump. There, there was a recent article, the Post ran a great graphic of the possible targets for a real investigation of what happened on January the 6th before and after, including Trump. 22 targets were identified with uh, pretty amusing pictures and, you know, a draft of the Capitol. And it starts with number one, Trump, the orange menace, thus providing a easy starting point for one to wrap the laziest investigative brain. The Post also wrote a preface to this graphic accompanying it. It said, 
One would think both parties would have united to decry the assault and bring the instigators to justice. But instead, only the Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol to overturn the presidential election results have been brought to justice. Only the rioters. The Post also revisited in its comments the Hill testimony of Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, you may remember him, who testified before Congress last year. He said, quote, if a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. But not only does the hitman go to jail, Dunn said, but the person who hired him does. Trump is the person who hired the hitman, incited the riots. He was the one who had the interest because it was the job that he got, the power he'd received. Why has no one interviewed him in or out of the grand jury in the last year? I'm talking about Trump. Nobody. They don't even ask. If you want proof of one offense, if you're hesitant about the innocence of Trump, and they've had quite a, quite a PR campaign, a lot of lies. How about when Trump was leaning on the Georgia Secretary of State, demanding that Georgia change the votes to switch the election result from Biden to Trump? It was taped. Some may remember a former prosecutor uh, and uh, a former head of the FBI, Bob Mueller, who outlined 10 occasions of obstruction by Trump. DOJ has done nothing with those charges either. The epiphany for many Americans today is the dawning realization that not only had our government done nothing to prosecute these assassins of democracy, but our government has no intention of doing anything going forward, no accounting, no reckoning of any sort. Not for these criminals of the state. They will be allowed to soar above the law, unencumbered in their treasonous efforts to overthrow our government. Some have asked what crimes could they be prosecuted for. Well, there's a variety, and everyone will raise some evidentiary question. But the broad scope is uh, pretty serious. There are false statements, perjury, obstruction of justice. But there are several, maybe even more suitable offenses. <clears throat> First, seditious conspiracy. Title 18, the 18th volume of the U.S. Code, turned to Section 2384. It has two parts that apply conspire, quote, to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, and then there's a second part, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. That's a possible 20-year maximum. Uh, the crime need only be planned, a conspiracy. It need not actually be attempted. Now, some may argue about the question of force, whether it exists or it's of the nature that we have here, but I think it is, and certainly it's a good argument to make. Now, another charge, a second charge, is rebellion or insurrection. Again, Title 18, the 18th volume of the U.S. Code, Section 2383. Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the law thereof, dot, 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 or gives aid or comfort thereof. That's a 10-year maximum sentence. Now, a third offense that I think fits is Title 18, U.S. Code 2385, advocating the overthrow of the government. 
Whoever advocates, abets, advises, or teaches the duty, necessity, desirability, or property of overthrowing, propriety rather, of overthrowing or destroying the government of the United States. And it goes on to say, whoever with intent to cause the overthrow of any such destruction, prints, publishes, edits, issues, circulates, sells, distributes, or publicly displays any written or printed matter, advocating, advising, or teaching the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force or violence or attempts to do so. You can get 20 years maximum for that. And we can argue whether or not the plan that was circulated by Navarro and others fits the square corners of the statute. On January 5th and 6th, as we well know, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and our Attorney General, Merrick Garland, had done nothing, nada, either to investigate or cause to investigate or prosecute those behind the insurrection, and certainly not the overseers in the West Wing or on the Hill in Congress. The government has not interviewed a single person from the White House or the Congress who supported this failed effort to overthrow our democratic form of government. When the president spoke on January 6, 2022, a year after the insurrection, headlines read, quote, Biden just threw down the democracy gauntlet. Is that what he did? He gave a well-crafted speech, all right, and it had some identity crisis in it because it seemed to be written by at least two different people. But beyond the fact that it was well-written, bupkis, all talk. The title to the speech seeks to address, quote, the deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol. Why did he say deadly assault? Why didn't he say insurrection or rebellion? The first sentence of President Biden's arrest said the Hill was, quote, attacked, simply attacked. This is the kind of weasel words politicians use. Elsewhere, and I, I think it's only fair to mention it, Biden was more specific. Uh, more than uh, one hand, I think, therefore drafted this message. But one thing is true, Biden never said Trump's name. He referred to him 16 times as he by some pronoun or other, but never by name. He accused the former president of, quote, valuing power over principle. Well, there's nothing to dispute there. But since Trump has been free to do pretty much what he wants, Trump enjoys power still. Trump is endorsing candidates. His allies are changing the voting laws. He's raising money to race, as we expect he shall. Most Republicans are buying his con that the election was riven with fraud. This is a good example of something you've heard me repeat time and time again. You can't win the argument you don't make. Being silent while they're saying these things is why so many Republicans think there was fraud in the election. Biden concedes that new laws are being written not to protect the vote, but to deny it. Okay, true. But what are we doing about it? Nothing. Biden said great nations don't bury the truth, they face up to it. But we haven't faced up to the truth. We are talking strong, but acting slow and weak. Biden talks about the big lie. My minor criticism about this when arguing about it, and, you know, Biden's my president, is why not make the charge personal? Stick it to Trump. It's his lie. It's not some disembodied occurrence. Trump himself lied and repeatedly and about things everyone can understand. Biden shouldn't use language like, and here's, here's a good quote, there is simply zero proof the election results were inaccurate. Can I hear you yawn? 
Biden says George's results were correct because they were counted three times. He has a better argument than that. Why didn't he mention that Trump personally and on tape in the presence of other witnesses on the call tried to get the Secretary of State for Georgia to falsify the results, to commit a fraud, a crime, making Trump the winner by exactly the margin Biden beat him plus one more vote. Talk about arrogance. Biden says he's a street fighter. Well, I know something about that coming from the South Bronx, but I'm not getting into any street fights these days. But Biden should realize you don't win fights, street or otherwise, if you don't sting like a bee. Apologies to Ali. We can't afford to wait until the midterms to find out if our grasp of power in the Congress grows greater when past history suggests we will have less power, fewer Dems in the next Congress, in the House, and possibly the Senate. Biden said that Trump and company held the dagger at the throat of America as American democracy. Well, may it be said then that we are bringing hot air to a knife fight if we only intend to talk and to shame a man who knows no shame? Biden said, quote, this is the beginning of a renaissance of liberty and fair play. What in the world does that mean? In my opinion, it's a further sign of weakness to state as Biden did, I will always seek to work with Republicans to find shared solutions where possible. Because if we have a shared belief in democracy, then anything is possible, anything. Plainly, we do not have a shared belief in democracy. Not in the here and now. We have in the past, we may again, but not now. Indeed, it is an existential mandate that the Republicans manage elections that they can't otherwise win fairly. What does it mean to work with partisan who tell us up front, and I'm talking about McConnell, their strategy is not to govern but to stiff Dems and blame them for getting nothing done? And according to the polls, it does seem to be having some effect. We have examples of plenty from this paralytic Congress. First, a social stimulus bill. They spent a year on it. It is not possible, even among our Senate caucus, thanks to SNM, Cinema and Mansion. Second, a racial justice bill is not possible for the same reason. Third, a voting rights bill is not possible. What's left? The investigation and getting ready to win the midterms. I'd be glad to be wrong about any of these legislative matters, and I've had conversations with longtime friends about this, and I keep telling them I hope I'm wrong, and, uh, but I haven't been. <clears throat> I can count as well as the next person, and I did this for years on the Hill. I think it's more likely we shall all levitate before this Congress passes any of these critically important bills. That's why the midterms are so critical. We have to change history at the polls this midterm. By my way of thinking, it means prosecuting the bastards top to bottom and starting now, today. Don't wait upon a referral from Congress. Those hearings and that committee's efforts will turn to an evaporating morning mist if we lose the midterms. The solution is to appoint now a real prosecutor, not another Mueller who will survive the midterms no matter which way the voters go. We must give hope to those across this nation by showing that we don't tolerate efforts to bring down our government, our democracy, so it can be replaced by a dictatorship, by governance, by tyrant Trump's fiat. That's why a prosecution is of such critical importance. A.G. Garland, the head of the Just Us Department, as I prefer to continue to call him, also spoke this past week on January the 5th. He promised, and you won't have trouble with these words, to hold accountable, quote, all January 6th perpetrators at any level, accountable under law, 
whether they were present that day or whether otherwise criminally responsible for the assault. Now, I said it's okay, but let me pause for a second. At any level, does that mean Trump? Accountable under law. There's a Department of Justice ruling in the uh, that uh, maybe presidents should be treated differently. Does they, do they think that he's not accountable under law? That was one of those Mueller problems. Whether they were present that day or were otherwise cr- cr- criminally responsible for the assault, the assault, the assault, not the insurrection, not overthrowing the government, the assault on who? The people? Is this entire thing limited to whether or not a police officer, Capitol Hill police officer, got punched in the mouth? Do we believe that Garland will do anything? He hasn't even charged the now pending simple misdemeanor charge against Meadows for ignoring a congressional subpoena. It's not that complex a charging exercise. I could do it in an hour, with or without a grand jury, because you don't need one for a misdemeanor. It's not that complicated. Do we expect the prosecution of Trump or anyone else for a felony when we can't wrap our minds around a simple misdemeanor for failing to comply with the subpoena of the Congress? Nobody's going to be prosecuted unless things change dramatically. I have another personal experience that I observed with others and then had a chance to discuss it on air. MSNBC's Ari Melber took presidential economic advisor Peter Navarro to the woodshed on the air a week ago getting Navarro to concede that he had a plan for a coup, and I made reference to it, involving Trump, Bannon, and himself bragging about it. Check what I've said in the on-air discussion about the White House having a plan as an element of a prosecution. And we have a plan that Navarro proudly said that he roundly circulated to Republicans. On the air, I suggested to Ari and listeners that perhaps A.G. Garland would like to get a transcript of Ari's interview and question Navarro about excerpts from his book, his interview with Rolling Stone, and certainly what he admitted to Ari. And what do I hear? Crickets, crickets, crickets. No FBI agent agent is going to interview Navarro. If I was the Attorney General, I would. And... Probably, if you were to close your eyes, pick a name out of a hat of any former prosecutor, and maybe many of the current ones, if they were honest, they would say, wow, yeah, I bring in Navarro. Oh, sure. I bring in this one and that one and the other one. Because prosecutors are affirmative acting, pushy, to get at the truth. That's what they do. So, uh, you can be sure no FBI agent has interviewed Navarro and probably by the time they finally knock on his door, he'll say, I'll pass. No guts, no glory, no democracy. A.G. Garland said, we will defend our democratic institutions from attack. Exactly how will that be accomplished? One way, of course, is prosecuting those who have attacked our democratic institutions. Make others think twice before they attack, knowing they could get long sentences in prison. And isn't attack, again, a word removed from what we're concerned about? Isn't it a minimization, a normalizing of the worst conduct? It's what the Republicans have been doing, but I can't believe the Attorney General of the United States is doing it. Garland said he, quote, will protect those who serve the public from violence and threats of violence. Garland gave examples of people being threatened, but nothing about any prosecution of those who made these threats. He, he wasn't clear either if these threats had anything to do with the insurrection, although they're mentioned in the context of the insurrection. 
He reached kind of far and wide, referencing the case of a federal judge in New Jersey. And I only know about it the way others do. There was a lot of coverage about it. And I once was friendly with a prosecutor who was shot at in Texas, and they killed the judge in his case. But A.G. Garland's report appears to be an error. Yes, there was a federal judge who was threatened. No one in her family was harmed. There was, however, a separate instance of a state judge, not a federal judge, whose son was killed at their family homes. It appears that Garland's threat report conflated these events. If that's true about these, how reliable is anything else he says as examples of what he's accomplishing and why we should trust his leadership on going forward with these people who would destroy our government? Attorney General Garland's description of the insurrection was even thinner gruel than President Biden's account. Yet he did say, quote, there was no higher priority for us at the Department of Justice. What does Garland mean by priority when there has been no investigation of what role, if any, Trump and his cronies and Hill conspirators played in the insurrection over this past year? Is he going to start now? You would think so. People want to believe that. But did he say it so we would believe it and then not do it? And I suspect that's the case. Garland brags about the apprehension of the, the rioters and the obstacles the department overcame. Well, the Justice Department devoted such resources to the rioters. A valid question is that that diversion of resources compromise investigating the misconduct of the rioters overseers. That is right, the White House and the people on the Hill. And is it possible that concentrating only on the rioters left an escape valve from oversight of the more significant players in the West Wing and on the Hill? Politicians sometimes borrow from Houdini's toolkit that relies strongly on misdirection. I think that's what we have here. A.G. Garland describes this January 6th insurrection investigation as requiring the most resources ever, and he says countless hours. But consider the investigation involving the 9-11 attack. They may not have been countless, but they did count them, and there were 3,994,968 hours of special agents and support personnel. The department was able to count those hours, and I didn't find a number, but there was also the Oklahoma City bombing that Attorney General Garland, if I remember correctly, worked. There was the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Africa. There was the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta. I was at them. And more. It is doubtful this investigation of the January 6th insurrection compares in terms of resources with these other investigations. Of course, whatever real time was spent on the January 6th insurrection investigation was spent exclusively spent exclusively on the rioters. Well, uh, and there's the rub. The department may have worked hard, but it's not clear that they worked smart. A.G. Garland describes how DOJ investigates a case, and there's been some talk about this since. I doubt that FBI Director Hoover, were he with us, would say, that's how you make a case. I've made conspiracy cases, and any prosecutor who spent any time in a federal office has made a conspiracy case, and I went around lecturing on how to make a conspiracy case while I was in AUSA. And the trick is you convince someone or other, or they convince themselves, from the highest ring of the organization, the people in the room who knows what's going on, 
and they turn on the others for consideration for themselves. If you don't find such a person, very often you don't make the case. Now, in the Trump situation, so much is done in plain view. We have so many in the West Wing and the Hill talking and writing of their active role in this assault on our democracy. We are far ahead, even a year later when the trail is cooler, to make criminal cases against these traitors to our nation. We need only have the will to enforce the law. We might fairly ask why Attorney General Garland states that, quote, expressing a political belief or ideology is not a crime. So, yeah. He says further, no matter how extreme. Well, look at the statutes and decide if the conduct fits the statutes. Maybe the Attorney General should familiarize himself with Section 2383 that makes insurrection a crime, or Section 2385 that is concerned with advocating the overthrow of the government. It's not understandable when A.G. Garland says there cannot be different rules depending on one's political party or affiliation. There cannot be different rules for friends and foes. Well, for a lawyer and former judge, A.G. Garland prefers what's vague and opaque to what is clarity. There are not different rules based on party affiliation. Okay, but in this case, the facts are that party affiliation was a significant element of the gross and historic misconduct at issue. It's motive. It's about power. It's about a party's inability to win an election is why they sought to seize power corruptly and unlawfully. And how can I say that they couldn't win an election? By the fact that Trump lost the election, that's a really good starting point as a matter of fact. There are not different rules for friends and foes. Well, okay, that's another nostrum, but what does that mean in this case? The facts of who are friends or foes are directly related once again to the misconduct at issue. Trump was unable to win the election. He lost the election. He plotted to get it by a corrupt means. He defined the Democrats as foes, who he lies, stole the election. He surrounds himself with friends, really corrupt individuals, who join his conspiracy. A.G. Garland couldn't make a case against Trump or his criminal associates, not by working up the ladder, starting with these lowly rioters. Now, let's, let's look at this walk, working up the ladder kind of stuff that he's mentioned. You know, and I've heard people say, and I, I, I was asked by one news correspondent about this fact. So, well, didn't he work up the ladder? I said, well, what does that mean? First, the AG's investigation is consumed with the low-end spectrum offenses from the get-go of the rioters at the investigative expense of letting go, if you will, the more, more significant investigation of the president himself, the beneficiary of the Republican power grab that he created, and his lackeys who did his corrupt bidding. So that's first. Second, it is highly unlikely, with very few exceptions, any investigation could go from a cooperating rioter at the basement floor of this conspiracy to Stone or Bannon or Navarro or the head of the snake himself, Trump. Third, it is definitely not going to be the case. If a rioter wants to cooperate, he'll be motivated to do so. If the prosecutor says to him almost from the outset, he's going to clear the case with a dismissal or he's going to offer a misdemeanor plea and he's going to offer a sentence of probation or a relatively short jail prison sentence. The person, if they knew anything, has no incentive to cooperate and put themselves at risk when they have a deal that's better than anything they could get. In fact, to admit that they are connected to the principles is to risk getting even more punishment and more severe charges. 
Now, the, this third circumstance about uh, Ryder wanting to cooperate when he's getting such a, a deal to begin with because the offense is so minor, uh, argues that cutting a deal with a rider means there is no possible upward link to any person in this conspiracy in the West Wing or the Capitol. Now, some may ask, am I calling Trump or Garland liars? Well, I don't know what that, where that gets us, uh, but l let's talk about what the facts are. What I believe is absolutely true is that the President and the Attorney General both tried to indicate to America that they hear that we want a reckoning. Okay, it's a different question about giving it, but they hear that. The trouble is they did it in such a way that it's not clear they're prepared even now to achieve that reckoning to do the hard work. Now, those who know me know that Seneca is one of my favorite Roman senators, and one of my favorite quotes from him is that the fates lead you to your destiny or drag you to it. Well, at the best, Biden and Garland are being dragged toward their destiny, and, it, and by Garden, uh, uh, Garland's speech, it looks like he's being dragged more than Biden is. And, and then again, Biden's problem is plainly there are at least two hands writing his speech. The problem with being dragged to your destiny is that to prosecute this case we, requires enthusiasm, and, and it has to be present from the get-go, because if you have reservations about this, you probably can't succeed. Uh, I'm not riding horses a lot these days because they don't bounce as high, but there's an old quote. Some tell me it was Churchill. I've heard it in, by other horsemen and women, and it is that when you come to a jump, Throw your heart over and the horse will follow. Well, if you don't have that attitude in a prosecution that you know what happened and you work as hard as possible on your case, you have to, you have to be in that place with substantial targets in order to prevail. Now, if we do not have it, do not do what the law requires, what our democratic form of government requires, we risk losing our form of government, our democracy, forever. You can't say we weren't warned. No less than Benjamin Franklin said when asked, you have a republic if you can keep it. That's what he said. Unless our government fights, shows courage, actually stands in the breach, we will lose the midterms and very likely our democracy. We the people have to tell our elected officials quite clearly, no nonsense, that the challenge is existential and there's no way to get around it, and they either follow our lead and fight against these criminals, or they might just as well go home because they're worthless to us. Their yammering accomplishes nothing. We need people that have some courage. I've often said it's no mistake that JFK's Profiles and Courage is a, is a thin book. And I have to point out, it's really something when Cheney is the person who shows courage and sometimes speaks the clearest about what that committee, the January 6th committee, should be doing. We need more Republicans. We need all Democrats. And we need to be talking about this daily. This is not something you can ignore. So I want to thank you for listening. I hope that uh, you found what I had to say helpful. And I'll, I'll be back on the air a week from now, next Sunday. All the best. Bye-bye.